welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm great, Yuri. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. I'm so pleased that you're able to join me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you. So I'd like to start off by asking you how you describe yourself and what you do. Uh, well, I describe myself as a catalyst, um, an instigator, a motivator, a provocateur. Other people describe me as a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug. <laughs> At least that's how I was described last week a couple times. I spoke at a giant conference in Canada, uh, one day in Calgary, the next day in Vancouver, and there were five speakers, including me, and the fifth speaker was Malala. So, you know, that was intimidating. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I was described when I came out on stage. So, so <laughs> it's an interesting question. How do you describe yourself versus how do other people describe you? And what do I do? I get people unstuck. Exciting. All right. So you're... This is definitely um, going to be a very interesting conversation, so I like it. So you <laughs> give you bone stuck and also a, a warm hug, punch in the face. So um, I'd like to start from the beginning because originally you studied government in college. What made you want to get involved and study uh, government? Oh, I thought I was going to be the first female United States senator from the great state of Florida. Huh? That was my plan. Um, P.S. It's been a lot of years and there still has not been a female senator from the great state of Florida. So we still got to work on that. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I grew up as kind of a big geek. I mean, like I went to computer sleepaway camp. I was a really, really, really big geek. Wow. Um, Wait, yeah. Who, what happens at computer sleepaway camp? Well, not a lot of kissing. <laughs> I think I was the only girl at that camp, and I still didn't kiss a boy until I went to college. So, um, and I was at that camp. I, I, I know you're thinking, oh, probably eight or nine years old. No, I was like 14. So, you know, geek. <laughs> and uh, I learned how to program BASIC and okay. COBOL and a little bit of Fortran on Atari computers. That's how long ago it was. In fact, there were a couple of Macintosh computers there, and we were all like, Macintosh? Apple, <laughs> that's not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> Alas, I was wrong. So I think that if I were five years older at the time, I probably would have ended up in Silicon Valley. I probably would have gotten swept up in the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. And um, when I went to college, I I was 16 years old, actually, when I went to college. And I thought that my, my work was going to be become a lawyer, uh, study political science, bec- become a lawyer, uh, get recruited, run, solve all the big problems in the world. Because I had grown up thinking that leaders are either CEOs of businesses mm-hmm. or 
politicians. And I knew I didn't want to go into business because I had a sixth grade teacher once who told me that I couldn't do math. So I <laughs> believed him and then never did math again. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I didn't want to do something in medicine because blood kind of grossed me out. And I, I, so it, I didn't really think that there were a lot of options. You know, I grew up in the 1980s in Miami and mm-hmm. the, the narrative was all the artists are gay and they get AIDS and they die. So you don't want to be an artist, right? Like these were the narratives that we were given and they were very specific um, expectations and very specific definitions of success. And so I thought, okay, well, if the leaders are politicians and politicians are doing good things because they're saving the world and solving the problems, I want to do that. So I studied political science. Wonderful. And then, so it looks like shortly after you graduated, you, you got a job on the Clinton Gore transition team. How did that happen? Well, first I went to law school and then I dropped okay. out of law school. <laughs> okay. Uh, so when I was, I, I graduated from college at 21 and I went, or I was actually 20 mm-hmm. and I went to law school and I was in the January class and the January class um, is because I graduated in December and then I started in January. The January class is like, it's kind of like the freaks and geeks class, right? It's the like the people that don't really fit in. They're kind of they're going back to school in the middle of their life. Like they're just kind of off the regular track. And I was off the regular track. <laughs> so there I was sitting there on the very first day looking around at my fellow students and my fellow students had either like flamed out and come back or um, they were they were like in the middle of their lives or maybe they were grandparents and they'd retired and they always wanted to be a lawyer. So they were just people that didn't quite fit. And I looked around and I was like, ah, I made a huge mistake. I do not belong here. <laughs> And um, and so I did what anybody does when they're in a terrible situation. I dated the guy you should never date. Oh, <laughs> and so I started dating this guy who um, had exceptional taste in two things. The first was obviously girlfriends. And the second uh, was unknown political candidates from small southern states. <laughs> And I used to ride my bike to class and it was raining that day. And he was like, well, let me give you a ride home from class. Um, I just need to stop by this guy's local campaign office. He's running for president. Mm-hmm. And I said, Governor who from where? Arkansas? <laughs> Not a chance in hell. But this guy put my bike in the back of his IROC Z. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. You know the guy I'm talking about. Right? Yes, I do. You see, you can picture this. All your listeners are like, yep, I know the guy. I can picture the mullet. Yep, I know the guy. And uh, we stopped by in this tiny little campaign office. Because back then, before the Internet, you had to actually go physically to, like, a small local strip mall. Mm-hmm. And we walk into the small local strip mall. In the corner of the room is a little black and white TV with then-Governor Bill Clinton. And he is giving this impassioned talk about – this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition, that there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And I went from thinking I am going to run for office and I am going to be the solution to all the problems I am going to help mm-hmm. to go, oh, my God, that needs to happen. And in a lightning bolt moment, I stopped asking, how can I help? And I started asking what needs to happen. And mm-hmm. what needed to happen for me was this guy needs to get elected and I need to do anything I can to help get that to happen. So I started volunteering on the campaign and one thing led to another. And uh, a few weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hillary and Al and Tipper Gore came through this tiny podunk town of Gainesville, Florida. And we got 36,000 people to show up at a campaign rally and the national campaign went, 
who are the volunteers there? How'd that happen? <laughs> and I got hired onto the national campaign for all of the ramen soup I could eat and all the idealism <laughs> I could stomach and uh, ate a whole lot of cold pizza and spent the next few months traveling around the country, putting on rallies all over all over the uh, all over the United States. And on that campaign, I met a friend who became the volunteer coordinator at the transition team mm-hmm. after he got elected and told me where to go on the first day. And I just kept showing up. They kept paying me nothing and I kept showing up. That's excellent. Oh, that's right. So how long were you part of their team then? So I was on the transition team from election day to inauguration day. And on 1201, inauguration day, I walked into the White House wearing my mother's hand-me-down suits with giant Alexis Carrington shoulder pads. <laughs> that's amazing. And what was it like when then working in the White House? Uh, what was it like? It was – it was – um ego maniacal <laughs> it was heady it was romantic it was exciting it was idealistic it was ass handing to you every single day mm-hmm. there, there were constantly people you know i didn't end up there because i was one of the bright young things i wasn't this harvard educated ivy fancy pants genius i ended up there because i just kept showing up and I would walk in every single day and I'd look around at all these young, brilliant minds and they would walk in with their New York Times magazine all dog-eared and marked up and they would sit before meetings to start with their yellow legal pads and they would write, furiously writing all these ideas. And I would look at them and think, what are they writing about? <laughs> I had no ideas at all. And they seemed so full of ideas. They couldn't bother. They couldn't even like bother to say hello. They were so busy writing them down. So I did what they did. And I would just sit and I'd start writing things down. And half the time they'd be like letters to friends. Like I just didn't really know what else to write. I was just faking it. And I was faking it till I made it. And the problem with that is that I was so busy faking it that I, I actually didn't learn how to be myself because I was trying really hard to be them. And I was not good at it because I wasn't them. I was just an iterative version of them. I wasn't figuring out who I was. And not only that, I also missed all the conversations happening around me, the relationships that were forming, the information that I could have been gleaning, like all of it, because I was so busy trying to look like I had my, my, my crap together. Mm-hmm. Then I never figured out how to get my crap together. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing you just brought up the idea of like trying to solve yourself in the middle of all this how would i and i know we'll talk about this a little bit uh, in a little bit you have a a book that kind of talks about this concept but what i guess if you could have done that moment again how would have you looked at that situation differently I think that there needed to be a little bit of me looking like I belonged there, right? You know, the walking in with the look on your face that you're so confident to nobody asks you any questions. Mm -hmm. But I think I would have spent more time forming relationships um, with other people and not trying so hard to tell them what I knew, but ask them what they knew. You know, you don't have to ask questions in a way that's like, I don't know anything. Please tell me. You can just ask people about their experience and their opinions, and um, and and you can do it in a way that doesn't have to show that you know nothing, mm-hmm. but shows instead that you're interested in learning everything. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's a very good point. So when was it during your, I guess maybe it was your time there or before that your interest in in the nonprofit sector was developed? Oh, how did I become an executive recruiter? <laughs> 
that's an interesting story. Um, so I worked there for four years. We helped create AmeriCorps, right? The largest national service program in the United States where young people serve in college in exchange for college tuition. We've had over a million people have served in that program and I'm exceptionally proud of, of, of that. Mm-hmm. And then, the 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 1996 campaign was rolling around and I went to my boss my my mentor and I said Eli I um I think it's time for me to leave and to go out on the campaign trail and he said Laura you're too young to do anything real you're too old to eat campaign you know campaign cold campaign pizza and sleep on a high school gymnasium floor like you did four years ago and you're too young to be the domestic policy advisor, so you shouldn't go back on the campaign trail. <laughs> he basically was like, no, that's a terrible idea. And he said, you should go talk to my friend Arnie Miller, my mm-hmm. best friend for the last 40 years, and he runs an executive search firm that works specifically in the nonprofit sector. You should go talk to him. He'll find you a job in nonprofits. You'll you'll hide out for four years, fighting the good fight, doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and then you'll come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. And I in 2000 and I said, great, sounds like a plan. I sat down with Arnie Miller two days later and he said, yeah, you don't want to work in the nonprofit sector. You should come work for me. I'll teach you everything you need to know about leadership and it'll be great. And I said, wait a minute, your job's in Boston, right? And he said, yes. And I said, well, the guy that I'm dating now, who's, by the way, not driving an IROC Z, <laughs> he's the one and he doesn't yet know it yet, but he's the one and <laughs> He's about to move to Boston to get his PhD in economics. Um, I'll take the job. Yeah. Tell me what you do again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I became a headhunter. <laughs> so I would love to say that every career move I've had has been strategic and planful mm-hmm. and that I've executed exactly on, you know, on the strategy. But I think that would be a disservice to your listeners, to anybody that I talk to who looks at me and says, she seems like she's got it all figured out. Well, the truth is that I never have, and I've made it up as I go along. And in 20 years of doing executive search, first for Arnie, for four years for the best and the brightest in the business, and then for for, for 16 years on my own with the search firm that I founded and ran and eventually sold to my people, mm-hmm. the most interesting people I met along the way, the best leaders, the ones who are our most successful placements, were the ones who had left turns and U-turns and right turns and never went in a straight line anywhere, um, but who followed a, a something that was interesting to them to do good work with good people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd like to say that I had this very specific interest in nonprofits, and that's what led me into doing a nonprofit executive search. The truth is I just wanted to do good things that were good for the world with people who I thought would have my best interest at heart, and that's how I ended up in executive search. Oh, wonderful. So along this way, you decided to also start writing uh, and and wrote a, your book in, I'm sorry, it's uh, Moving from Profit to Purpose in 2015. What, I'm sorry, Mission Driven, Moving from Profit to Purpose, helps if I read the book title in order. Uh, so what made you decide to want to write a book and particularly focus on on that subject? Oh, you're asking all the perfect questions. Um, so I got a phone call one day from an editor from Kaplan Publishing, and she said, hi. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? I do, yes. <laughs> she said, we have this series about changing your career. One is about going from, into nursing. One is about going into teaching. And one is about going to nonprofits. Would you like to write the one about going into nonprofits? <laughs> and I said, well, 
I'll give you the cleaner version. I said, screw you. Who are you? What friend put you up to this? I thought it was a crank call. Yeah. Turns out, Merry Christmas. Here's your book deal. That's that's so this is like the best story. I've interviewed dozens of authors. This is the best book story I have heard yet. Okay, but somebody he, actually he, called you up to do that. Okay, but he, but this is the lesson that I learned. <laughs> you know how she found me? No, how did she find you? She call she says, So we're doing this series and I've just been researching people who could be authors and I saw a blog post you wrote about going from for profit to non profit work and I thought you would make a great author. Huh. And I said, Really? That's interesting. Which blog post was that? Because I thought I didn't write anything really big and super amazing. And it turns out it was this three paragraph thing that I wrote in like 10 minutes and I posted on my own website and she found it. Wow. So here's the lesson. We can all be Fox News self-referential experts, right? I am an expert because I'm telling you I'm an expert. See, don't you believe I'm an expert now? I, I do believe you're an expert. You wrote a book about it, too, so clearly you have so, to be an expert. Right, so this is the lesson that is to be learned by everyone. If you just tell people. <laughs> so here's the good news. The good news is that at that point, I had spent over 10 years doing this work. So I was actually an expert. Thank goodness, because the editor wasn't. They didn't have subject matter experts. They were just editing my grammar, basically, and making sure I was working in the in the guidebook format. Right. And so... So it, it, it all worked out because I happened to know what I was doing. But I think that the lesson to be learned is that if you have something in which you actually do feel like you have expertise, where you really do have a good mastery of it, stop waiting around for other people to give you permission. Right. We have the Internet. We can go out there and we can say this is something that I do well and it is of value. And so I'm going to charge money for it. And that's OK. Because when you tell people that you do something that is of value, you're going to charge money for it. It turns out that a lot of people decide it's worth paying for. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. But we have to do it ourselves. We can't wait for someone else to give us permission. Right. So with your someone giving you permission to write a book, um, <laughs> what did you? <laughs> I know I just swing that one back around. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a ridiculous story. Yeah. It is. The next it's... book is even more ridiculous. So we'll get to that. <laughs> excellent. I, excellent. So what were what were some key takeaways you were illustrating in in your first book? Well, the first book was really about how to go from working in the corporate sector to the nonprofit sector. And the some of the key points were things like you can actually do well and do good at the same time, mm-hmm. right? It's going into nonprofit work is not necessarily having a life of poverty. There are plenty of actual jobs and actual career paths in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. So that was the first. The second is that there are actually a lot of transferable skills. So most people who are looking to go from corporate to nonprofit work do have skills that are useful. And then the third is that it doesn't have to wait till later in life. There are people who go back and forth from corporate to nonprofit work all the time because they're actually able to leapfrog some of their competition in the corporate space because you can in the nonprofit space, there are just fewer people in every organization. There's there's more work per capita. So instead of being, you know, the head of a division, you can be the head of an entire department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe instead of being, you know, the head of IT, you're the head of operations, which includes IT and human resources and finances and operations. So it's just a great way to be able to to take on more responsibility at a younger age and then go back and forth from sector to sector. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So let's let's segue into your most recent book that has just come out. 
Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. What made you want to write this book? So when I ran my executive search firm, so I had this, I was at the big firm and then I had this moment of rage where I was just like, oh, I could do this better and smarter and faster and with more profitability and more authenticity and more integrity than these, you know, traditional old guys in the traditional old office. And I'm, you know, I had my Jerry Maguire moment. Mm-hmm. I went into my boss's office and I was like, here's a better way to do it. And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> And I could have chosen to stay, but once I realized that I wasn't part of the solution, I began to feel like I was part of the problem. So I left and I founded my own firm and um, I ran that firm very differently. I ran it for 15 years, but 10 years into it, I went, eh, I haven't really learned anything new in a while. And I really like growing things. And we're really at the point now where this needs to just be maintained. Um, and it's growing in different ways, but it's not growing in the way that, that, that you know, I was growing it in this like iconoclastic, we're going to do things totally differently way. And I turned to my business partner one day and I said, I don't actually like executive search. (laughs) You actually love executive search. And for the business to grow to the next level of where it needs to be, it needs somebody who is so super geeked out about the work that we're doing that you can grow it and change it in that way. And so she said, ah, okay. (laughs) And so we spent five years, Sold her the firm, okay. uh, her and another woman who helped who helped build it. And so 15 years after that, I had been doing this work for 20 years. I had run my own firm for 15 of those years, and I was uh, turning 45 years old. Mm-hmm. They all seemed like really good numbers, right? And then I had this crisis of identity because the next week I went to an event, an art auction, and a friend of mine who uh, is in journalism introduced me to a friend of hers and said, this is Laura. She, she used to have this great career. Now she dedicates her life to philanthropy. (laughs) And I didn't know if I should stick my cocktail fork in my eyes or hers. I was just like, I cannot become that person. I mean, to be fair, I was on the, the, the committee of this art auction. So, you know, I can understand where she got that from, but I was like, ah, No. So I set up a website and here we go. Full circle moment. Mm -hmm. I started writing blog posts. (laughs) So I started writing blog posts about my ideas and the things that I thought about. And a friend called me up and said, uh, you should think about doing a TEDx talk. That Mm -hmm. blog post is really interesting. And I said, no effing way. (laughs) It's not a chance. And now I have two teenage sons. I think I'm a decent mother. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I'm a good mother, and I take calls on my speakerphone as opposed to picking up the phone while I'm driving. And she called me on my speakerphone, and I said, no way, hung up the phone. And my uh, now 16-year-old, then 14-year-old turns to me and is like, hey, mom, you know how you always tell me that uh, you should do hard things? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, don't you always tell me that if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you? Mm-hmm. And don't you always tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he goes, so what gives, mom? <laughs> uh, it's always rough when your kids actually pay attention. You know, I just I wish know. they'd ignore me and look at their screens a little more sometimes. <laughs> so fast forward six weeks later, there I am. I'm standing on the TEDx Cambridge stage at beautiful, beautiful Boston Opera House, 2,600 mm-hmm. people, theater lights, no notes, no net. Big mm-hmm. red circle. And I give a TEDx. And that TEDx gets a little bit of attention. And that little bit of attention turns into offers for me to go speak places for money. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's a job? 
people get paid money to go speak. And um, so then I was like, well, if I'm going to actually get paid to do this, I should become a professional. Mm-hmm. So I get some training and I learn how to become not just a speaker, but, you know, a performer. You get on stage and, you know, owning the stage and, and, and really sort of carrying an audience through 45 minutes of a keynote talk. Um, and then I began to feel really uh, I talked a lot about confidence and finding your voice of leadership. And uh, ironically, I wasn't feeling very confident because mm-hmm. I didn't have a book. Mm-hmm. I didn't have um, a Ph.D. in neuropsychology. Like I didn't have a body of work. And. And even though I had 20 years of studying and recruiting and, and stewarding leaders through massive amounts of massive moments of career change, I felt like I needed a book. So I called a publisher that I know and I said, hey, I'd love to write this book about confidence. And he said, great. We'd love for you to do that. But before you do that, we'd like you to write this guidebook series. <laughs> And if you and you wrote this other book about corporate to nonprofit work, mm-hmm. would you just take those 80,000 words and make them into like 20,000 words, coffee with an expert type feel, and we'll put it as part of our guidebook series? And I went, well, okay, that's the way to get the other book. I'll do it. Yeah. So I start writing that book. And unlike the other things I've written, which sort of came from me, like visceral you know, things I had to write, this was like chapter one problem, solution, chapter two, problem, solution, chapter three, problem, solution, on and on, 10 chapters, boom. And I couldn't do it. I, I, it was, I was having, I'm a pretty fast and natural, mostly final draft writer. It takes me a long time to think, but it takes me a short time to write. Mm -hmm. And I was having a really hard time and I called him up and I was like, listen, this is not working for me. I can't, I can't write purpose doing work that matters it's just it's not in me i I, it's not working and he said you're right i agree (laughs) (laughs) and i said well that wasn't the answer i was expecting (laughs) and he said but i think that the book you actually are writing is a bigger book and it's a bigger idea book and we should publish it in hardback in the spring when big books come out oh oh merry christmas here's your book deal number two (laughs) yeah (laughs) So I hang up the phone in a complete moment of panic and I call a friend of mine and I said, uh, I don't know what to do um, where I'm not writing purpose, doing work that matters anymore. And he said, well, what do you want people to feel like after they've read this book? Mm-hmm. And we spent 45 minutes on the phone going back and forth, really like trying to find like what it was that I was trying to write. And he said, so in the end, you want people to be limitless, ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life. Oh. And I went. I I need to hang up the phone right now and go write that book. And so I did. And that's how Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life came about. Oh, wow. So That's an odyssey of a story, isn't it? It is. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. With So when you're in the process of actually writing, do you get um, any types of writer's block? Or is it just because of your process that you've you've pushed past it in some kind of way so it doesn't hold you back so for me as i mentioned i write in fairly final form but it takes me a really long time to think so i'll like perseverate over stories that i want to write about or ideas that i want to write about until i can find the hook in Mm -hmm. and then once i find the hook in once i know what it is i'm trying to say it's pretty easy to write and it's okay. pretty easy to like carve the sentences and have them, you know, the feel and the energy behind the sentences. I wrote something 
just the other night I had I, I was on a red eye back from Vancouver and I was exhausted. And it's the end of a week where my book comes out number two on the Washington Post bestseller list right after Michelle Obama. I had just given two talks each in front of 2000 people, a talk I'd never given before. I got to take a selfie with Malala like it was it it was a it, this will this I will look back on this and it will have been a life changing week right it was like a, it was a big week so I'm on the red eye and I'm sitting next to this guy who's like half leaning on me and my seat doesn't recline and I just I'm like I'm like crunched in like in the middle and it's awful so I don't I'm not sleeping. And I'm racing home to get home for like our closest friend's daughter's bat mitzvah. So I'm like in the middle of all this emotion. She's like my goddaughter. Mm-hmm. And I open up my laptop and I write this long Facebook post about how this week has been so incredible and it's been so wonderful and it's also been so exhausting and it's like, it's wonder hell, right? And I was like, I wrote about this idea of wonder hell when all of these wonderful things are happening to you, but you're just, you're like you're like a shell of yourself exhausted and mm-hmm. you can't complain about it because you'd be a real jerk. But at the same time, it's like y- you don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. Right? It's just right. it's so hard. And when I when I came up with the word wonder hell in my mind, I was like, yes, it's wonder hell. And then I just wrote this thing and like 400 people have liked it and shared it and commented on it. And it was fascinating because I like wrote it. I started and I was like, it's 428 a.m. Or maybe it's 7.28 a.m. Or maybe it's 1.28 a.m. I don't really know. Somewhere in the blur between yesterday when I got on this plane and tomorrow when I get off this plane, there is time and space. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what it is. And I like then I'd, like, I like describe that, that time and space as wonder hell. And it was once I figured that out, it was like, oh. And it just like poured out of me in like 10 minutes. And I hadn't slept in 30 hours at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me, I think writer's block comes from – when you don't know the way in to the story, mm-hmm. that for me is where I get I would get writer's block, and that I just have to spend time thinking about it and living it in my brain. And not, like there are people who say the best way to write is to sit down and write every single day. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for me. For me, the best way to write is to think every single day. Hmm. Interesting. So I. I'd like to tap into one, some, some actually some parts of your your now book, especially since you kind of brought them up uh, during your time working for the Clinton administration, and that you were not sure necessarily who you were or, or what you wanted to become. And there's a there's some parts about your book that talk about calling and connection and contribution and control. I think calling is a huge part um, of the start of this. A lot of people are not sure, you know, especially let's say you're in the arts and you automatically assume that maybe because you grew up with some kind of artistic uh, background or some kind of, um, you know, good artistic skills that maybe that is your calling. So when you think about calling, how do you think about it and how do you help people or at least some suggestions you give people to find ways to, to find a goal bigger than themselves that necessarily isn't just one like say job title. Yeah, so I would say that let me say why we, I think we get calling wrong first. Okay. I think we get calling wrong because we confuse it with purpose, higher purpose, lofty purpose. And we think that the only people who have purpose are like Mother Teresa feeding right. the lepers in India. That we think that if we look up purpose in the dictionary, there's going to be a picture of her or a picture of a friend of ours, you know, like with her judgmental finger wagging in your face, like, you know, that's not, you know. She's like holier than now, right? More committed than now. 
And the truth is, I did look up purpose in the dictionary. Um, and here's what it means. It means the reason for which something is done. That's it. That is the entire definition of purpose. It is the reason for which something is done. And mm-hmm. so we think that our purpose has to be this bigger than life thing that it's, it's, it's gotta be, um, so worthy that, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be the white hat, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't. It's, if your purpose is curing cancer, then great. If your purpose is getting yourself out of debt so you and your family can live in financial freedom, then great. And if your version of purpose is buying a Maserati in a beach house, that's great too. That's your purpose, right? That, that is it. And the only person who should get a vote is you. And the problem is that we keep giving votes in our life to people who shouldn't even have voices. And that's where it all goes off. That's where it all goes off the rails because we have, we, you know, we turn to Instagram and we see people that are like, they pretend that they have this calling, this thing that like comes out of them, like a beam of light from their inner soul. And it's not necessarily true. And mm-hmm. frankly, even if that is your calling at that point in your life, it's going to change. You know, my calling when I was young and single and working on the, the presidential campaign was really different than my calling was when I was I had a six week old baby and I was founding my last company is really different than what my calling is now as I'm traveling all over the world doing a book tour and trying to get, you know, to get under Oprah's Sunday soul, <laughs> soul Sunday <laughs> conversations. Um, yeah. Calling is different at every age at every life stage, as are the rest of the, the parts of what I describe as consonants in the book, this thing that actually puts us in alignment and flow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we get calling wrong because we're defining it as this bigger thing. And really, calling just has to be some gravitational force that you feel. It could be a business you want to build. It could be art that you want to complete. It could be a family that you want to grow. It could be a bottom line that you want to contribute to. It could be a societal ill that you wish to cause, uh, that, that, you wish to, to, that you wish to solve. Mm-hmm. All it has to be is something that matters to you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What would you say to someone who says that they are, I don't know, too, too young or too old to, to either, to, you know, use their calling to to do something bigger than themselves or or to you know start something new? What would you say to someone who has that kind of, um, you know, limitation? Honestly, I'd say that the calling isn't that important to them. Interesting. You know, you hear people all the time saying, I'm too busy for this. I'm too busy for that. You know, oh, I wish I could go back to grad school, but I'm too busy. Or I wish I could run that marathon. I wish I could train for a marathon like you, but I'm too busy. Or I wish I could do. I wish I could do. I wish I could do. Mm-hmm. When I tell people when they say that, when someone's like, oh, I'm too busy, what I hear is it's just really not that important to me. Mm-hmm. I think we all find time for the things that actually really matter to us. And if they don't really matter to us, then, you know, he's not that into you, right? Like, it's just, it just does. And that's okay, right? Like, it's okay if, if there's something that you want to do, but you really don't want to do it right now. Like, life is long. There's yeah. an opportunity to do things at other times. And then I think there are people who have actual real limitations, mm-hmm. you know, where, it's financial. Maybe they've got small children. Maybe they've got they're t- taking care of dying parents. Maybe they do actually have to finish that degree. I think that there are those people too, and I think that's where you know this is where my 16 year old son talks about the side quest in video games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you play video games? No, not really. But I'm okay. I'm familiar with I used to. I'm familiar with the side quest though. Yeah. Well, I'd never heard of it before. But one day I had woken up and had a just a terrible night of sleep and i was taking my son on a weekday to um 
the dentist office and we were sort of waiting for the dentist and I was bemoaning the fact that I had to have this chapter done that day and I was supposed to write and I was so tired and I didn't know if I could do it. And he said, well, just go on a side quest. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is a side quest? And he said, well, you know, you know, sometimes when like I finish up the dishes really fast after after dinner and I go up to my computer and then I, I, I get really annoyed because my friend's like still doing his dishes at his family's house. He can't log in yet. And really like all I want to do is I want to go to the, I want to go to the castle and slay the dragon and save the princess. He's like, well, I can't do it because my friend hasn't logged in yet. So I can go on a side quest. I can, uh, I can till the wheat. I can cut it. I can bring it to the market. I could sell it. I could get some money so I can buy the horse and the dragon so that when I finally do go on the main quest, Go to the go go to the castle, slay the dragon. I can save the princess. He's like, so just do a side quest. Like the side quests are the things that are not in line with your calling, with the main thing you want to do, but they're additive once you get there. So for people who say, I can't do it just quite yet because of these specific time limited or resource limited things, there's plenty of side quests you can do, like listen to podcasts like this, or go to um, conferences, or read books, or watch TEDx talks, or do informational interviews, or create a network. There's so many things that we could be doing right now that are ancillary, that mm -hmm. are calling proximate. <laughs> they are our side quests. They're not directly in line with our main quests. But they're there so that when we do finally get on the horse to go to the castle and slay the dragon, it's easier to save the princess. Mm -hmm. With so with everything that you are doing right now, I know that you are you know you you get on stage often and you're writing books. The times when you first felt apprehensive, maybe about writing your your first book or even getting up on stage, how do you approach fear and push past it? Oh, it's terrifying to get on stage. Absolutely. Um, for me, at least. And it's terrifying to write something and put it out into the world. There's nothing scarier than that minute you press send and then you just sit and you wait. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. Um, I am right now in this place where I'm, I'm, I am watching the Amazon.com reviews come in and I'm just waiting for the first gut wrenching, horrible, just <laughs> eviscerating. <laughs> review and I and I know it's coming. It's I've only been out for like five days, so right now it's mostly my friends reviewing it. But mm -hmm. but I know it's coming and it's going to be bad. <laughs> so here's here's what I do. I know that there are some people for whom my message deeply resonates, and they're mm -hmm. like, "Yes, where have you and the permission you're given me been all my life?" Mm -hmm. And then there are some people who just ain't picking up what I'm laying down, mm -hmm. and those just aren't my people. And that's okay. So it's it, for me, it comes down to saying there are going to be some people who love me and there are going to be some people who hate me. And mm -hmm. I can't have people who love me without the people who hate me. Because if you're just kind of milk toast in the middle, then everyone just likes you. Fine. <laughs> Nobody does anything if they like you, but they'll, they will move if they love you. Mm -hmm. I was on the Today Show last month and I was on the 10 a.m. hour, the, the Hoda and Jenna Bush Hager hour. Mm -hmm. And most of the people on that hour are stay at home moms. That's what I was told by the producers. So I worked very hard to, 
just like soften it up a little to be a little more gentle to be more of the warm hug and less of the punch in the face and <laughs> you know I had soft hair I had soft makeup I was wearing an aubergine colored dress it was I did I'm I'm athletic and so I have a lot of muscles and I was wearing a, a sleeve to cover my muscles like I was just very toned down mm-hmm. even my sister called me and was like I like this version of you <laughs> Um, and she goes, she goes, I like this This is good. And then I started getting, I got a bunch of emails from people saying, I really liked you on the show. And I went to your website and, oh, it's amazing. Like you just, you're, I just, everything you're telling me is great. And then I got some emails from people saying, I really liked you on the show. You were so lovely and articulate and uplifting. And then I went to your website and I felt like I was being assaulted by the foul language. And the foul language was like, H-E double hockey sticks. Right. You know? <laughs> Not exactly. I mean, there's some F-bombs. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I like a good F-bomb. It's a good <laughs> punctuation mark. Um, but the, the pieces in particular that, that these individuals are talking about were not egregious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I sat with them for a little bit. And I actually emailed back and forth. With a couple of these these women, you know, mm-hmm. what particular was it? Because I, I was just curious and they were surprised that I was interested in conversing about it because like the stuff they sent me was a little bit like you're going to burn in H double hockey sticks. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to learn more about sort of how I was coming across. And what I really said in the day was, you know. I'm just not going to be for them. And that's okay because somebody else will be for them. And yeah. that's going to be great for all of those people involved. But for the rest of them, I can't reach the people I want to reach with the power and the audacity and the energy if I tone it down to try to be something for everyone. I have to just be all in for the people who are my people. Yeah. So so what you're saying is you're not going to bring out the softer side of, of Laura moving forward? Well, I mean, I'm learning to like – I'm learning to do it. I'm learning to sort of <laughs> honor people's experience and their pain. Um, it's it's interesting, you know. I I very often when I'm speaking to you know audiences of two thousand people, I'll bring people on stage and do like live coaching in the moment. Mm-hmm. And um, there it's the hardest part of that for me is not solving the random problem that somebody might come up with in that moment on stage, but it's not jumping directly to the answer. And honoring their pain and their suffering and their misery and their confusion and their loneliness or whatever it is, and just giving them that second, hugging them, applauding with the audience for their courage for sharing, and then walking them through with these catalyzing questions to help them see the solution on their own. But, you know, I am such a problem solver that that for me, if I were to look in the last 10 years of my life, I would say that's like the biggest maturity moment is understanding that sometimes people just want company in their misery before they want a pathway to solution. Sure, sure. Good to know. So with everything that you've done and experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice that you have ever received? Oh, <laughs> the best advice I've ever received is this. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard. You're just not that important. Interesting. Who said that to you? <laughs> so there is a woman who I know who um, she founded and ran um, the first and largest in-house, like in-building in, in daycare for um, uh, major corporations. And she built this company and grew it. And then sold it for like $60 million, like 15 years ago, when $60 million was even more money than it sounds like it is. Right yeah. now. 
And I was talking to her one day. Uh, we were having lunch. I'd gotten to know her through a mutual friend, and she, I had, she had asked me what this mutual friend's advice was to me, this mutual male friend. And I told her, and she's like, oh, you need some girl advice. That's terrible advice. Come, send me an email. We'll have lunch. Mm-hmm. So we had lunch, and I was complaining about how, you know, I don't know. I was complaining. And she was like, I don't understand what's wrong. You've got a, a growing business, a happy marriage, healthy children. What's the problem? And I said, I just, I just, I yell at my kids too much. And she said, well, why? Tell me about your day. So my kids at that point were in elementary school, and I told her all about how I'd you know, I, I, I worked all day long. Um, then I'd pick them up from school. We'd go to the playground and then I showed her my, I think my trio at the time. <laughs> I, it was a little while ago. <clears throat> and I said, I said, you know, I've got this, you know, PDF uh, device and so I can be at the park, but I can also be in the office and it's really great. And she was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> She's like, you're not in either place if that's what you're doing. And I was like, what are you talking about? I can be in both. She said, listen, she goes, you're not that important. You're just not that important. She said, if, and at the time, you know, I'm building my, my business. I'm building my family. I'm serving on boards in my community. I felt like I was really important to everybody in all places. Mm-hmm. But she said, if you're building a business that you can't step away from for an hour at 3 p.m. to take your kids to the park, you're either not building a big enough or, or strong enough business or you're a micromanager. She said, and if you are, um, she said, she said, and if you're raising a family that can't imagine you not being with them every waking moment when they're not at school, like you can put them in front of the TV, have them watch Sesame Street, give them some ice cream at them. Then, of course, I was like, well, TV and ice cream are the you know, twin, you know, twin towers of hell. It's awful. And right. I later find out that her daughter is like the head of children's television programming at PBS. <laughs> But I was like, you know, at that point, I'm young, I'm a young mother, and I was all righteously indignant about, you know, everything being pure and clean or whatever. I let my kids eat dirt now. But at the time, you know, I thought I could do all things. I was trying to be all things to all people all the time. And she's like, no. She said, if you're being all things to all people all the time, then you're really not being there for the people you care about. You're not that important to all of these things and all of these people in your life. And in fact, if you're trying to do that, you're not being that important to the causes and the people where you actually are that important. And so she really helped me to think about how to get rid of the noise and how to stop saying yes to everything just because I was the closest proximate heartbeat that was asked and to think about what really matters to me and to double down on those things. Hmm. Excellent. Well, Laura, thank you so much for spending the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. If the listeners would like to, of course, see more of your your writing, hear your speeches, buy your book, where is the best place they can go to do these? Yeah, so they can find me on all the socials. I'm at HeyLGO, like H-E-Y, waving at me, HeyLGO. And on uh, my website is HeyLGO.com, so... Super easy. Yeah. Um, the book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere fine books are sold. And if people are interested in taking an assessment that I put together to figure out where they are in terms of their own consonants and how to create more alignment and flow in their life, they can go to LimitlessAssessment.com and take a quiz. It's got about 60 questions. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. It's a little intense, but it will really open your eyes to where you might be stuck and what might be getting in your way and things that you can do right now today to get unstuck. Perfect. I will make sure all of those are in the show notes so they can click right through. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, Laura. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast. If you liked this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to advanceyourart.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.